Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Swan Hill Regional Art Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support. What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr Mark Halloran and you're listening to Deep Trouble. We're back in the studios of Main FM, 94.9 Main FM, and once again, I am facing down Mark Halloran. Hi, Steve. We've got a very interesting interview today. Why are they all so interesting, Mark? Because I think we choose really, really good subjects. Mm, I think you choose very good subjects. And tonight, you'll be interviewing Professor Jenny Graves. Yeah, so Professor Jenny Graves is from La Trobe University, uh, She's a world-renowned geneticist who was made famous or infamous for her postulation that the Y chromosome is disappearing uh, and has recently written articles for The Conversation discussing the evolution of the gay gene and the genetics of transgenderism. Do you think there are any ethical implications in her research? Uh, Well, there's always ethical implications in terms of scientist research, particularly for geneticists. I don't think there's any manipulation going on, though. Simply, you're looking at whether the gene is present or not present. Mm. So it doesn't have the same ethical connotations as something like creating a genetically modified organism or something like that, where there are lots of ethical questions that come up. I think what is interesting about this is there are two narratives around this in terms of social constructionism versus biology, essentially. And the biological determinants are fairly clear. And interestingly, if you're talking about somebody's sexuality, like someone being homosexual, the idea that this is socially constructed, the the view that this is determined by cultural or social learning or something like that, has been well and truly in decline since the 1950s, since anthropologists from the 1950s. It's also the idea that it's socially constructed. Interestingly enough, in the 80s and 90s and probably earlier than that, it was really the Christian right that didn't want to look at any kind of genetic determinism because their argument, as Jenny points out, is that if it's genetics, well, then how could have God created somebody with a gene that makes them transgender or gay? And so they, they simply don't want to accept it because they don't want to accept the idea that God would create was someone. Fallible. Was Well, no, that God would create somebody who is gay or transgender. And there so, is biblical refutation in tonight's interview in parts because you know we're talking about creative design what do you call that intelligent Uh, design so yeah jenny used to run a website which is called dumb design and she used to use certain examples from the animal kingdom like the spotted hyena so in terms of the way that the spotted hyena is involved she uses that as an example to say that well there is no intelligent creator because if you're an intelligent creator you wouldn't create this this is something this is a collection of mutations gone awry essentially that have selected themselves out and are now sort of functional i think our listeners will find it's a fascinating interview so without further ado let's have a listen to mark halloran 
in conversation with Professor Jenny Graves. I wanted to talk to you first about your work in terms of sex determination. You've become famous or infamous for your contention that the Y chromosome is disappearing. Yes, indeed, and um, it is disappearing too, but very slowly. So the work we did on uh, kangaroos and platypus told us that our sex chromosomes were just ordinary chromosomes about 166 million years ago. Uh, And we know how many genes are on them um, now, how many genes were on them then, and we can calculate that over that period of 166 million years, they've lost about 10 genes per million years. There's only 45 left, so it's not very hard to calculate that in four and a half million years, our Y chromosome is likely to be gone. So what will that mean for the Y chromosome? Well, you might not even notice it uh, because it's actually happened in a couple of species of uh, rodents. Uh, They have lost their Y chromosome, but another gene has come up to take over the job of the sex-determining gene, and another chromosome is on the way to becoming a Y chromosome. Then if the Y chromosome disappears and that region remains, does that mean that you have infertile uh, males? We'd love of... to know how it's likely to happen. We, we know that on the balance of probabilities, it will happen in the next 4.5 million years, that is, if human beings last that long, which seems quite unlikely. Probably what will happen, either the Y will disappear and will become extinct, because we do need males and we do need sperm. We can't do parthenogenesis like some lizards do. That won't work because there's a lot of genes that have to come through the sperm. They're called imprinted genes and they're not active unless they come through sperm. So we do need men and we do need sperm, but those sperm genes can also bounce onto other chromosomes. And that's what has happened in some of these uh, rodents that have lacked the Y chromosome. The sperm genes have got stuck onto other chromosomes or or copies of those sperm genes have got stuck on other chromosomes or other similar genes have taken over the function. So I wanted to talk to you about this in relation to the article that you've written for The Conversation recently in regards to transgender and the, and the genetics of transgenderism. I've been interested in transgender for quite a long time. Uh, The reason was I got involved in um, looking for the sex-determining gene quite by accident back in the late 1980s when we thought the gene called ZFY was a sex-determining gene. And we're starting to do some work on is there a ZFY in marsupials and The long and short of it is, yes, there is, but it's not on the Y chromosome. That's actually Mm. the wrong gene. And my student, Andrew Sinclair, then went to London and cloned the right gene. But at that time, a psychiatrist called uh, Dr. Bowers came to my lab. He'd been working with transsexuals for a long, long time. He was a psychiatrist and um, he was one of the few people who would uh, sanction sex change operations. So he was regarded as a big hero in the transsexual community. And he was quite sure that there was something genetic about transsexualism because he observed that a lot of other people he saw had always believed they were the other sex, even when they were small children. And he wanted me to look at the ZFY gene and see if there was some sort of mutation in that gene. Uh, Well, to begin with, of course, it was the wrong gene. 
There's a number of different what they call disorders of sex determination. They call them DSD patients, and there are a lot of different ways in which sex doesn't develop properly. There's something like 30 genes that are involved in either making a testis or an ovary in the embryo. And if something is wrong with any of those genes, you'll often get sex change. So there's a whole lot of DSDs, and a lot of them that we can't explain yet. There's probably more genes that we don't yet know about in that pathway. But certainly it's what's occurring is that the embryo and fetuses at some points in development, something happens and therefore it moves from where whether it was being masculinized in a phenotypic way. I'm yes. not talking about social or cultural, but, and then moves back towards being a female phenotype. And a lot of these people have no idea there's anything amiss. Uh, for instance, there's a gene that you've referred to before that is a receptor of androgens. Yes. And now if that gene, which is on the X chromosome, if that gene is mutated, you get a perfectly normal-looking female. And she doesn't realise that she's actually got a Y chromosome and a perfectly good SRY gene until she fails to menstruate. Several have been models or champion tennis players because they're bigger and stronger and very beautiful. But they have a Y chromosome and an SRY gene and the SRY gene made testes and the testes made androgens but their body can't use the androgens because they have no androgen receptor. So that's a very late stage in the pathway, but if you interrupt that stage, you interrupt everything. Essentially, in terms of intersex development, there is a continuum of, let's say, intersex, uh, for want of a better word, conditions. Yes, I don't like the term intersex because it's not really inter-anything. What term do you prefer? Uh, well, I think DSD, Disorders of Sex what Determination, does, does it's a blanket term that means just anything that is awry with, with sex determination. Right. Maybe the intersex term is the one used by people within the community. Oh, I think that's probably true in their books called intersex, but it's a term that doesn't really convey. I mean, these are very specific disorders and we know yeah. a great deal about a lot of them. I'm going to talk about a couple of them. Sure. Uh, a couple of cross-cultural examples. Mm. I think sometimes from an anthropological perspective, maybe anthropologists have confused because transgender populations have existed across time and culture, mm-hmm. uh, intersex populations across the world. I mean, one is in the Dominican Republic, a mm-hmm. village Salinas, where one in every 90 boys are born female and then convert. That's the same as the Tiwi Islands. It's very, very common. Yes, and we know a lot about that condition. Uh, and they Pap- call them make a man. Well, in <laughs> there's a tribe in Papua New Guinea, the Sambia tribe, which is the Kowalu Atamwal. I'm sure I didn't say that properly, but it means or changing into male thing. Um, but in Pidgin English, and I went there, it's uh, the turn of men. Can you talk about why that occurs? I'm no biochemist, so I can't yes. ever remember the name of all the enzymes in I'll, the pathway, but yes. uh, there is a particular enzyme that is involved in making androgens, yes. and it doesn't work as well as its normal counterpart. So that's why these people are born looking like females. But at puberty, there's a rush of androgens, and enough androgens to convert the clitoris to a penis and make a man. The difference between gender and sex, because this is a pretty important, I mean, socially, this is a, an issue which has become of paramount importance. It's being discussed a lot. Absolutely. Um, we've got uh, 
intellectuals, I guess, uh, talking about this to, well, to some extent. We've got people like Jordan Peterson in Canada talking about pronouns. I wonder what your thoughts about the whole social situation is. Well, I've, I've thought about this over many, many years because people for a long time will ask me things about gender and they'll yes. really mean sex because yeah. I work on sex. I don't work on gender. It seems to me that sex is a, a product of essentially your genes and gen, and it is who you are biologically, but gender is who you think you are, right. uh, who you identify with. They can be concordant, and in most people, gender and sex are concordant, but in a very significant minority of people, it's not concordant. What I took away from your work or or your comments on on some of the work that's come out of Monash University is both the concordance and the inconcordance is biologically based. I think there's got to be some biological basis for it because people have done twin studies. They're not huge twin studies, but they all point to some um, component, genetic component. And what they do is look at identical twins who have identical genes and compare the concordance, that is both both cisgender or both transgender, compare that with with the general population. And they find a a very significant, not huge, I think it's 30%. 30% or 30%. something like that concordance. Yes. I'll bet you it's actually more than that because, right. of course, we know that there are a lot of transgender people who don't want to come out. Right. Uh, and so I would expect that as it becomes more acceptable to be transgender, that frequency will probably rise. We know that there's social factors as well to play. Yes. And twin studies are usually the way you measure how much is genetic and how much is social. Yes. And 30% is what they generally find, which mm. is a considerable, but not, not overwhelming. And I'll bet it's actually quite a bit bigger than that. Uh, but it's possible now to look at particular genes and find out if variants of those genes are more common in the transgender populations. And there have been yes. two or three studies, quite small studies, that have said, yes, yes, this gene, this variant of the gene is more common in transgender people. The latest one was done by my colleague Vince Harley at the yes. Hudson Institute. And he looked at uh, 12 genes that are all known to have something to do with hormones. Right. And four of those genes had variants which were quite uncommon in the general population and much more common in the transgender population and all of these genes would have something to do with hormone levels so that seemed to make sense i would bet you that if you do a full genome screen you might well find hundreds of genes that have something to do with gender identity just that you know if you look at 12 you're only going to find out something about 12 we've got another 20,000 or so People are now looking at not just 12 genes, but all genes and comparing them in the transgender and the cisgender population. And that's just mutations. So you're just looking at DNA. It's now possible to look at uh, the expression of these genes too and also the epigenetic modifications of all the genes in the genome. And who knows what we're going to get out of that. Uh, My guess is that it won't be just one or two, three, four genes. It might be hundreds of genes that add together to give people their sense of gender. 
as I think that's probably the case for homosexuality too. I mean, mate choice is a highly selectable thing. And we know just in fruit flies, there are lots and lots of genes that uh, contribute to mate choice. They're genes that if they're mutation, males will mate with males. So there'll be lots and lots of genes. And I expect there'll be lots and lots of genes that contribute to your sense of gender. Does it then become difficult? Because I'm thinking about sexuality and at least your gender identity as being pretty complex behaviours. The analogy I like to make is on height. I mean, height uh, varies enormously in any population. And on average, males are 14 centimetres taller than females. But within both males and females, there's a great spread. And it's not at all unusual to have a short male or a tall female. So I would expect gender identity to be much the same. There will be in both males and females a spectrum, a whole distribution from very female to very male. And of typical course, you mean in terms of absolutely, average, on typically, average. Absolutely, yeah. uh, that's what I would expect if there are lots of genes that contribute to gender identity and yes. they're not all linked or none of yes. them are linked to actual biological sex, you would expect yeah. to find feminine guys and masculine women. That's what you see. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Haller in conversation with Jenny Graves, Professor of Genetics. Because essentially what it comes down to, this is the crux, I suppose, for me, is that your work is around some sort of biological basis, genetic biological basis. But the zeitgeist for the time at at the moment would be one which probably had more influence in the 1950s from anthropology from people like Franz Boas and and Margaret Mead, which is social constructionism. So people talk about, well, gender's just a construct. So it's just that we make it up. So the reason I'm male is because people taught me to be male. And this is an idea that's taken on. And I can understand why it's taken on because it kind of explains to people why you would be, you know... uh, born you know with male phenotype but then feel as though your whole life you've been a woman but the interesting thing was that it was exactly that ideology that really affected the dsd population because what these people did was they came in and said well look you know gender is only a social construct so it doesn't matter if they've got ambiguous genitalia just pick the one that looks the most likely and, and surgically remove the rest and raise the person as a girl or a boy or whatever else and they'll be fine of course they weren't because there was something biological about their identity. Well, of course, there's a huge cultural uh, emphasis on gender and there's huge arguments about how much is socially constructed. I'm a mother. I'm now a grandmother. I have grandson, granddaughters, and nobody can tell me that there's no biological differences. They are so different. And I think most parents would recognise that even if they try to bring up their little girls to play with trucks, they will play with dolls and their little boys will play with guns even if you give them dolls for Christmas. There are things that every parent notices and they're much deeper than cultural constructs. Given that, though, of course, there are huge cultural pressures to conform to one sex or the other. I mean, my hope is that one day it'll actually cease to matter if men and women were really equal in the eyes of the law and society, then 
What does it matter what you are? We are not in that happy place yet, though it does matter. There are all kinds of pressures to make little girls into princesses and little boys into heroes. I would love to see those cultural pressures cease, but I can't see that happening anytime soon. It's not as though these ideas like gender are not to some extent culturally constructed. I think it's interesting to admit that, of course, there's huge social pressures to conform one way or the other, but probably people are genetically more or less susceptible to them. So little boys who have more of the feminizing genes are much more likely to rebel against being given a gun for Christmas and going to shoot ducks or something. And I think there's probably that's the way that these other genes are expressed is to make children much less susceptible to to social pressures to be a certain sex. If they have very strong feminizing genes, they're not going to put up with that. If a girl has very strong masculinizing genes, she's not going to be put up with being told that she's a princess and has to wear wings. (laughs) I guess you've also talked about, um, was it the work of Dean Hammer? Dean Hamer, yes. Hamer, sorry. He was the, um, uh, who's somebody I, I met many years ago. So he published in, I think it was 1998, uh, the first really good study uh, looking specifically for gay genes. Yes. There'd been speculation, you know, how much of this was genetic and how much was uh, environmental for years and years. And, of course, it all gets very religious and all caught up in all kinds of stuff so 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 he he i watched the video and he talked about the right so right-wing conservative politics probably in america really affecting the idea that they really didn't want a biological basis well i didn't ever really understand that until somebody in america told me look you don't understand if there are gay genes that means god made a sinner and god can't make a sinner so therefore there can't be genes what? That was the logic behind it. Uh, and so yes. very strong it was. So Dean Hamer came out with a study that I looked through with great interest and with, uh, I thought it was an excellent study. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the problem with homosexuality, at least in 1998, was that there are lots of gay people who don't want to come out. And so doing twin studies and that sort of thing, you're always going to underestimate the frequency of homosexuality and the because concordance in twins. Because uh, people don't want it's to. It's like admit a self report, essentially. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, a lot of people were not out of the closet and didn't want to come out. So, that yeah. was a problem. So, he looked specifically at brothers who were both out and gay. And so he did not have that problem. And he looked specifically for families in which gay brothers had gay male relatives on the mother's side. Right. Now, that may seem strange to you, but that's looking specifically for genes on the X chromosome that are inherited by males only from their mothers. Yes. So I thought that was a very smart thing to do because he was boiling it down to a smaller number of people but looking very specifically for... Uh, for something on the X chromosome and what he did was compare all the genes up and down the X chromosome and look for what parts of the X both brothers had inherited and that pointed to a particular region on um, the bottom of the X chromosome which has now been substantiated three separate times uh, and said yes well there's at least one gay gene here. Right. Uh, and we still don't know what it is, right. but there certainly is one there and there's probably several others that people have uh, used the same kinds of methods to identify. Yeah. I'm saying there's probably hundreds. 
You've talked about, I think you wrote about the Human Genome Project identifying at least three or four more, chromosome 8. Um, well, there are similar studies to Dean Hamer's, and yeah. th- there was a lot of controversy about that, but I think there's no question that there are lots, there are at least three or four well-substantiated gay genes there. My, What I've said is I don't believe they're gay genes. Right. What I think they are is male-loving Yes, genes. I do want to, did want to ask you about that. Um, yeah. Or female-loving could be potentially... Well, a- I mean, the mystery to me is not that there are male loving genes because selection will uh, make choice is one of the hottest selectable traits there are in fruit flies humans and everything else so it's absolutely not surprising if they're male loving genes but they'll be selected for in females so females that have male loving genes are likely to partner early and have more kids this is an italian study isn't it and in fact they do there's italian studies that said they have a lot more kids a lot more kids 1.3 more children that's right uh, Uh, i mean it's astonishing and um the reason i wrote that article in the conversation was that this was really not known in the gay community and i thought well that's terribly important to know these are not gay genes they're male loving genes and they're very common because they're selected for in the female relatives of gay men yes so if gay men don't have as many children it doesn't matter because their sisters and and aunts do have more children so the gay genes keep on being pretty uh pretty high frequency in the population how do they know that those regions so if you you take hamer's work with the x chromosome across twins how do they know that that region really is influencing a really complicated behavior well what they looked it's at commonality. Was, was simply commonality yeah. uh, these two brothers which bits of the x chromosome did they have in common yes um because uh, every generation, because in their mother, uh, she has two X chromosomes, they swap bits. So, you know, one brother gets one bit and the other brother yes. gets a different bit. Yeah. So what bit of the X do they all have in common? And right. I think he had something like 23 pairs of gay brothers. So he was looking right. across a number and, and it all pointed to this particular region on the X chromosome and other studies who have come up with the same region and others. And I'm saying there's probably, it would be really surprising if there weren't lots and lots of male-loving genes. Well, I suppose the, the question would be that it's it's not as though, is it, is it that it would be a single gene? So if it was in these particular cases, because it could vary for individuals, essentially, across hereditary and family, mm. but um, could it be that it's not just that gene even in oh, one individual absolutely. it's multiple genes? I mean, uh, evolution doesn't care what gene it is. If yeah. it makes you mate uh, earlier and have more children yes evolution's onto it yes so <laughs> and it- so any gene that has a variant that makes you partner early and have more children will be selected for and right. that's why i'm saying it would be really surprising if there weren't lots and lots of male loving genes and i'll bet you there are lots and lots of female loving genes and male loving genes yes and that's why you that was uh, that was essentially uh, how you tried to answer i think was it in terms of evolutionary fitness hypothesis? Exactly. So you would have said to us, you, the question would have been, well, if a person's gay, they might be less likely to have children that's and so always less been likely to pass on, on genes. So that's all, always been the problem. Why is homosexuality so common? Because you can yeah. argue about how common it about is. 15%? But it is, it is right. really common. Yeah. And um, to me, uh, that 
really didn't make sense in terms of the genes being passed from gay men because they, on average, have fewer children. But if the same gene is in their sisters and their aunts and they have more children, that that will make up for it. And I'm making yes. the same uh, the same sort of prediction for for uh, transgender genes. Yes. I think any gene that makes you feel more feminine. Yes. Um, is likely to to give you trans women right. who don't have as many children, but the sisters and aunts are likely to partner early and have more children because they feel more feminine, right. and that's going to give you a higher frequency of those genes. Right. It's what we call um, sexual antagonism, right. <laughs> which is a really funny well, term. But so it so really is someone is... going to do that study? Is someone doing the study in terms of transgender people? I've been at contacted their... by at least three people who are interested in doing that study. You're listening to Deep Trouble, Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Jenny Graves, Professor of Genetics. There's now a, a continuum in terms of gender within the trans community. So you've got people identify, I don't know all of the identification, but non-binary. So there's people saying, I don't identify with either. Uh, what, what would be your explanation there in terms of genetically? Well, I, I think if it's like height and you have um, men who are short and men who are tall and most people somewhere in the middle, yes. and if uh, gender identity is the same, you have men who are, are, are very masculine, men who are very feminine, most people somewhere in the middle. Yes. And, and you expect to have a, a, a cline in the number of people who very strongly want to be female or who not so strongly want to be female, quite happy to dress up a bit, but mm. aren't, you know, uh, are generally fairly happy living as a man as long as they can express their feminine side in some way or another. Yes. Um, to the middle of the road where most people are going to be, to the other extreme where you have very gung-ho masculine male. Yes. I suppose I wonder, thinking about it now, that the same thing with sexuality. So you might have people who are maybe genetically combined with culture and environment, very, very heterosexual, and then people who are very, very homosexual. Absolutely. But yep. maybe because some of the environmental constraints are being removed, like societal constraints, so we're changing the way that we behave as a society and some of our societal norms, there are more people sort of moving towards the middle. Oh, I'm sure. Well... Because there are, uh, are there more people in the middle? I think there's always more people in the middle when when you have any kind of spread uh, with many many genes involved, like height. There, like most a bell people curve. will be some a bell curve, yeah. if you like. So it's the people on either side who can run into trouble because their uh, the feeling about themselves is not coordinate with their biology. Um, I would expect as we become more accepting, and hopefully we are becoming more accepting, yes. we'll, we'll find more and more people coming out as trans or wanting to express their feminine side uh, more more yes. openly and one hopes that that's exactly what's happening now because there is i feel like there is some resistance to your research as well um in the articles that i've read i think sally goldner from transgender victoria um they're they very concerned about um uh the study at monash university because they didn't want they well they they didn't think it was such a bad idea that you could find some biological determinants, but this was sort of the same thing with the, uh, the Hamer. Yeah, absolutely. With uh, the people didn't want to necessarily, they, they were concerned about being reduced to biological elements and genetics well, because they, were they felt like. I think they were practically concerned with the idea that, um, that parents could 
test their embryos and reject those that had gay genes. Like a test, or, essentially. Exactly. Yep. Uh, and I think those were very real concerns. Yes. And what I'm hoping is there'll be so many genes involved that it'll be impossible to test wow. and predict. Uh, yes. And I'm sure that is what's happening with homosexuality. There's going to be a lot of genes there. Uh, it really is not going to be possible to make a predictive test. Yes. And so hopefully that just isn't going to happen. Because I, I suppose I feel like the, uh, the part of the concern was also that if people are tested let's say you're a man who identifies as a woman but you don't show up the right genes and things like that then where do you where do you fall um and you know whereas the social constructed idea is kind of all uh all encompassing I got some very interesting comments back on my transgender article, which I think you haven't read yet. Um, And one person was making the point that it would be useful to have a predictive test um, because, for instance, if you had a child who was expressing transgenderism, now we know that half those children are going to... um, change their mind and uh, become cisgender uh, on puberty. It was about 80%, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's a lot. And you don't want to uh, obviously do drastic surgery on somebody who's then going to change their mind because yeah. that's that's horrible for so that's everybody. A, that's a natural part of um, child development as oh, well. Absolutely. like uh, Like having some of what they'd call now fluidity in terms of gender. Uh, in terms of identity, is a very natural thing for children to do. Oh, I think so. And uh, I think one wants to encourage uh, girls to climb trees and boys to like art. That We'd we'd (laughs) like... To, to have children who had the full range of experiences. Uh, but uh, it, it's obviously important to know which kids are not going to change their mind and passionately want to be the other sex. Yes. And if there were, this uh, commenter said, if there were a predictive test, you would know which kids are really going to want to change sex uh, now, that's kind of in opposition to the, if, if it were possible to do a predictive test, then maybe there would be embryo selection or uh, terminations, right. which I think nobody wants. Yeah. So I can see that there's there a concern, might, though. There's a concern. Yeah. I can see there might be valid reasons for wanting a predictive test, but to me, the dangers far outweigh the benefit. Yes. Because they're concerned about things like neo eugenics. Oh, absolutely. Which is always a concern. With yes, it. Like of even in the develop, development of tests for developmental disorders. So as you expand, so we have tests for Down syndrome, and as you expand, that they want to they want to expand more tests out to pick up more developmental yes. disorders. But some people have looked at that and said, well, the rate of then voluntary selective abortion for people with for embryos with Down syndrome is it's eighty percent in France yes. or something like that. So you're, it's actually a form of neo eugenics. Well, of course, I, I'm very familiar with those arguments, and mm. I would have to say, from my knowledge of people who have had babies with severe congenital defects, mm. you know, I, I would certainly uh, go for genetic testing on all serious developmental effects and selective abortion. Uh, But I know people who 
uh, chose to carry a baby to term even though they knew it would have no brain. Yes. Now, to me, I can't understand how you could possibly do that. So that's an encephaly uh, or something. Yeah, an encephaly. Yeah. Uh, that's to me so horrible, I can't even think about it. But, right. you know, in terms of Down syndrome, I know people also who have had a Down diagnosis and chosen to continue their pregnancy and who love their Down's yes. child. I mean, Down's yes. children are very lovable. Yes. Uh, so there's there's a... There's well, no, there's no line. No, there. well, I suppose it's an, like it's labelled that, but it's it's simply an ethical question. Yes. So it raises interesting. I don't think anybody would want selective abortion of against embryos who were not going to be good tennis players, for instance. That's getting into the designer baby thing, yeah. and I, I think you know very few people would support that. And then on the other side, there are horrible, horrible syndromes that you would not wish a baby to live for three years with any of these horrible syndromes. But, you know, in that huge area, uh, there are people who will opt for one or the other solution. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr Mark Haller in conversation with Jenny Graves, Professor of Genetics. I wanted to talk about your animal work and talk about some of the interesting cases because I think it's it still relates to gender and, and sexuality to oh, some yeah. extent. Tell me about some of the interesting cases in terms of animals, because I read a bit of your paper in terms of the way that genetic, you know, we've got chromosomes that genetically select the X and Y chromosome, and but there are animals that, that do it through temperature, through environmental cues. Well, most of my life I've been working on the chromosomes that determine sex. Yes. And, of course, in humans it's the Y chromosome and the SRY gene. Um, quite accidentally, when I first came back from the United States where I did my PhD, came back to La Trobe University, I started uh, working on kangaroos. And the reason for that was a friend of mine said, oh, please give me a hand, use your technology to map genes. Yes. And I said, well, why would anybody want to map kangaroo genes? Right. But what he said was, um, well, Jenny, kangaroos are an independent experiment in mammalian evolution. And right. I thought, oh, wow. And so I really went to town on, on kangaroos yes. and mapped genes on their sex chromosomes and figured out that they, uh, and, and uh, we found that, yes, there is an SIY gene on the Y chromosome, just right. like there is in humans. So I have an X and Y chromosome? Yep. Yeah. just uh, It's actually interesting because it's not as big as humans, and it turns out that about a third of our X and Y chromosomes were actually not X and Y chromosomes at all 150 million years ago when uh, we had shared a common ancestor with the kangaroos. Well, that came off a bit of another chromosome, got stuck onto the X and Y, right. and most of the human Y chromosome is that extra bit. How do we ascertain that? <laughs> well, because it's not there on the Y chromosome or the X chromosome in kangaroos, right. and we know that it was actually a bit of another chromosome, chromosome 5, that got stuck on about 100 million years ago. How do we know it was that amount of time? Well, because it's uh, there in elephants, which we shared a common ancestor with an elephant about 105 million years ago. So it had, had happened before that, but it happened after the split with kangaroos and other marsupials. Right. So it's somewhere between 105 and 148 million years ago, that extra bit got stuck on our, our sex chromosomes and mm. contribute most to our Y chromosome. You do talks sort of about intelligent design. Or to, I suppose, argue against intelligent design. And one of the examples we talked about briefly before was the spotted hyena. 
Oh, well, for a long time I ran a website called Dumb Design. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's so many things that you see in nature that just make no sense at all. And sex chromosomes are one of them. Um, Sex chromosomes are a terrible idea. Are they? Uh, Why? Well, to begin with, um, having only one X chromosome is a really bad idea because there are lots of genes on it, particularly genes that are important in brain development. And if you've only got one of them, which males have, if there's a mutation in it, Bad luck. It's the good chromosome as well, isn't it? Because the Y is unstable, Well, there's almost nothing left on the Y chromosome. There's only mm. 45 genes. Um, 27 of those are on the male-specific region. The mm. other is actually shared with the X. So there's 27 genes on the Y, and there's more than 1,000 on the X. Right. So most of those genes have gone, awesome. and that includes some really important genes. So if you've got a mutation in those genes, that's bad luck. You're mentally affected. This was in terms of conditions, maybe developmental conditions and disease. It's more likely to occur for males? Well, it'll occur in males because there is only one copy of the X chromosome. In females, there's a backup copy. And, of course, I've talked about um, mental retardation, but there are lots of other genes, like, for instance, blood clotting factors. If you have a blood clotting factor and there's a gene on the X chromosome, there's something wrong with that gene, you have haemophilia. So most haemophiliacs are men because they they don't don't have a backup. Women can be heterozygous, so they have one good copy, one bad copy, but they're fine. So I always got the sense from reading this, and I, I certainly don't know much about it, but I got the sense that men are always more vulnerable. Oh, yeah. Like from in utero, so more likely to miscarriage and things like that. And a lot of that, like that may well be because they have only one X chromosome. So if you look at mental institutions, most of the uh, patients with mental retardation are boys. And that's because the X chromosome has an awful lot of genes on it that is required for building a brain. And if there's anything wrong with any of those genes, you have some serious mental problems. Right. Same with colour blindness, I mean, that's not such a problem, but mostly it's boys who are colour blind because there's right. a gene on the X chromosome. Right. So males overrepresented in terms of genius IQ as well? Is that, that more socially constructed or um, is there I some I think genetic? there is some, some evidence for that and that is what you'd expect because the frequency, uh, I mean, the bell curve is the same, but uh, it'll be wider right. for males because there's more fluctuation because there's only one X so, chromosome. So more Females are kind of the average of their two X chromosomes, but poor old males have only got one. I suppose in terms of dumb design, we were going to talk about the spotted hyena. Uh, well, the spotted hyena is a, a lovely example because the females are extremely aggressive, but they have male genitalia. I mean, they have a penis and they give birth through the penis, yes. which is an extremely hairy, painful experience that usually the firstborn does not survive. So it seems like a really silly idea. But in fact, what's happened is that there's been selection for very aggressive females that can defend their territory and defend their young. And what that has led to has been selection for high testosterone levels. And the side effect of that high testosterone is to make male phallus. The females are larger, stronger. The lowest female on the hierarchy of females is higher than the highest male on their hierarchy. That's right, they keep their males in order. (laughs) Yes, that seems like a really bad way to have babies, but you can see why. why. So why? why? That seems like a mistake. 
Well, there's a lot of things in nature that seem like mistakes and you can always find explanations, not in function, but in evolution. Mm. This happened because there was selection for very aggressive females that can defend their patch and basically have more babies. Why with hyenas, why with spotted hyenas and not striped hyenas or why not with chimpanzees and gorillas? That's a question for the ecologists. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Haller in conversation with Jenny Graves, Professor of Genetics. Coming back to it, you gave another example earlier when we spoke about species where males are redundant and environmental cues can essentially turn a female into a male when Uh, needed. I wouldn't say the males are redundant, but there's a lot of fish that change sex. And I've always been very intrigued by those because I'm a sex chromosome person and some of these fish don't have sex chromosomes at all. Some fish start off being female and then turn into males when they get uh, to a particular size. Others start off as males and turn into females when they get to a particular size. The one that I'm most interested in and I'm doing some work with an ex-student of mine in New Zealand is a fish called the blue wrasse where there's a single male and he's got a blue head, and everybody else is female, they're smaller and they're yellow. But if you take that male out, the biggest female becomes male. She becomes male very quickly, her behaviour changes in minutes, her colour starts to change in hours, and within nine or ten days she's given away her ovary and she has a testis-making sperm, which is absolutely a remarkable reprogramming. That is a very flexible <laughs> reprogramming. I mean, is, are any males born or is that generally just how no, it happens? No, it's generally how it happens. And right. the, the group that I'm working with in New Zealand has looked at what genes are expressed and finds that uh, during this transition from f- female to male, that the first thing that happens is that the, the female genes are downregulated very, very quickly. Yes. Uh, stress genes are upregulated, reprogramming genes are upregulated, and then the male genes are all upregulated so it all happens in a week so you said that stress hormones like cortisol are really important in terms of this type of sex differentiation and selection well i also work with a group at the university of canberra who work on the dragon lizard and that was interesting because we thought we were looking at sex chromosomes and sex genes and there are sex chromosomes which we discovered and sex gene we think we know what that is but if you incubate the eggs at a higher temperature everybody's a girl and some of them have male sex chromosomes but they are actually born female they behave like females they lay eggs like females in fact they lay more eggs than ordinary females so there's obviously a switch that happens at high temperature that overrules the sex determining gene and so that gave us an opportunity to look at well what genes are being expressed Uh, and what we found was very interesting first stress genes were being way overexpressed in these sex-reversed females. So they had very high stress genes. And then we could find there were very specific differences in epigenetic markers. So some of the genes that changed the epigenetic marks were changed so that they wouldn't work. Yes. So somehow that releases something else in the pathway. So instead of getting males, you get females. I got the sense before, uh, I've never read it. But Richard Dawkins' book, The Extended Phenotype, uh, when you're talking about the fish and the female, the male, the one that is currently the male, 
for some reason being taken out of the mix and then within a very very short period of time minutes or something this female then adapting to the environment presumably the environment containing other females to become male so upregulation mm-hmm. stress hormones yes. and, and that's different. exactly the blue ras experience so it seems as though that the environment's signaling all the time well in the different ways interesting to, to thing ch- is that the signal, signal is visual Right. Uh, so they've done experiments long ago to show that if you put, you know, a female on one side of a barrier in an aquarium through which water can't get, if you put a bigger female on the other side, she'll yeah. stay female. If you put a smaller female, she'll become male. Right. If you put a mirror in there, she'll go crazy. Right. Because she won't be able to judge. So who knows how she judges that she's the biggest female in the tank. There must be some sort of visual measuring apparatus that we don't understand. I mean, that's fascinating though, isn't it? Absolutely. That, it, that her, at a biological level, the decision to differentiate and become male becomes not just on the presence of another female and the absence of a male, but the actual size of the female. Absolutely. And there's a really fine judgment around it. Judgment and If it's and large, stress. that's fine. And stress and then small. But and if, it, if, like, because when you put a mirror, you're exactly the same size, they become distressed because they can't get the differentiation. No, that's right. That's really interesting. Yes, I love those experiments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's off the topic, but it reminds me of um, Pavlov's dogs, which the classical conditioning thing to me wasn't the most interesting thing. What he did was he trained the dogs to recognize circles and ellipses, and then he only fed the dogs when they were presented with a circle. But then he created successive variations between a circle and an ellipse. Ah, uh-huh. And what happened was when the, it got so close, the dog couldn't am differentiate. Am I going to get fed or am I not going to get fed? fed? <laughs> the dogs developed a mental disorder, which they could ah, never recover from. I never like heard post-traumatic that. Like post-traumatic stress. Wow. Uh, yeah, I did psych. Well, you're talking about the blue ras and a mirror. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what the PST blue. PST and blue ras. Yeah, I, that's what the blue ras reminded me of. I suppose we've been talking about gender, we've been talking about sexuality, and we did talk earlier about equality and equity. And what are your thoughts about that? Oh, interesting. Uh, I mean, talking about sex, Mm -hmm. I think nobody in their right mind would say that men and women were absolutely the same. Right. So if there you are think, people that say that, though. Well, there are, and I have met some of them. Ah. (laughs) How did that go? Well, in my very early years at La Trobe, we had a new appointment who was going to have a woman's studies program. the humanities. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, oh, terrific, terrific. And and she was calling for volunteers to give a few lectures. So I wrote her a memo saying, yes, yes, this is a great idea. I'd be happy to give six lectures on biological differences between men and women. Yes. And I never heard back. So I sent it another one and I never heard back. And I right. found out later there are no biological differences between men and women. So what There's, do you think you're going to talk about? <laughs> they're socially constructed. <laughs> they're all socially constructed. Yeah. So that was a bit of a shock to me. Uh, but I don't think anybody would adhere to that anymore. Men and women are biologically very different. Right. It's not just the genes on the Y chromosome or the genes on the X chromosomes. It's one third of the genome is right. expressed 
very differently in one tissue or another or all of them. So they are not equal if you think of equal being uh, biologically the same. Equity is something different. I mean, you want to give men and women the same opportunities. You want to give short people and tall people the same opportunities. So you can put a soapbox on the fence so the short people can look over it. You want to give disabled people the same opportunities. Mm. So you put in wheelchair ramps. I mean, equity to me means helping people achieve the same opportunities. So there's an equal opportunity. Because people define equity in very different ways oh, absolutely. now. absolutely. That's some the way people, I define it. Some people define it the opposite of that, of, of like reducing some people's, uh, the people who are perceived to be the most dominant, reducing their opportunities and extending the opportunities of people. Well, that's kind of like cutting tall people off at the knees. I don't think anybody would go for that. Uh, well, it, <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the regime. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it was it was really important, and you've done a lot of work in terms of, I suppose, equality of opportunity for women in science. Yes, I, I've had a lot of opportunities to have some input, uh, both through the Academy of Science, and I'm really very pleased that the Academy's taken the lead in making opportunities for women and yes. for uh, encouraging institutions to up their game. I think that's actually working very well. After 40 years being on committees that never did anything except write more and more reports, it's all saying the same thing. It's just wonderful to see something actually happening on the ground. So there's actual action. Actual action is fantastic. And the barriers for women in science. Well, there still are barriers and nobody can pretend that it's easy being a woman in science, particularly if you want to have kids. I'm often asked by young women, you know, when's the best time to have a baby? And you have to say, dear, there is no good time to have a baby. Just have your baby and muddle along like the rest of us because there's always ways you can do it if you really want to, but nobody's saying it's easy. I guess because we talked about the particularly now the funding structure and the opportunity for grants and the success of a NHMRC grant and an ARC grants somewhere around 10 percent it used to be about 30 so if you took time out for maternity leave that might be the end of your career essentially unfortunately that is the case and what I'm hoping will come out of all of this is more opportunities for men to take time off and get to know their kids too Mm. and I think that is happening although more slowly than some of us would like Uh, so I'd love to see pressure for the men we want paternity leave too we want to not just help out the missus, but we want an opportunity to be with our children and have a significant role in their upbringing. Do they get any paternity leave? Uh, in some institutions, yes. Yeah, because it's a, I mean, science is a sometimes a, a 12 hour a day or five or seven day a week. Venture. I think that's another problem. I mean, it is, as you say, incredibly competitive, mm. and that doesn't make it easy either for men or for women. No, I really feel extremely sorry for young people getting into science these days because it's tough to make your mark, start up a new lab. Uh, So much administrative nonsense you've got to go through, as well as the things you're really hired for, which is teaching and research. Mm. It's it's a tough life and you've got to really want to do it. It's a tough life, but incredibly rewarding life. But it's not easy. I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for agreeing to be part of the series. You're very welcome, Mark. It's been fun talking to you. And so that was the interview with Mark Halloran and Professor Jenny Graves. 
Mark, how do you think that went? I thought it was fascinating. I thought the uh, idea around genetic determination in terms of sexuality and gender is a fascinating area. There's always an element to it that's socially constructed, but we've discounted the biological determinants of gender and um, sexuality, and now we're starting to uncover that. By the way, you do mention DSD. So could you just explain what does DSD mean again? Uh, So DSD means disorders of sex development. So that's a medical term. Um, Mm. In terms of the sociological term in the community, we talk about intersex people. So people whose physical outward expression and also internal as well, because there'll be hormonal changes and, and changes to internal sex organs as well. So people with that uh, ambiguity uh, refer to themselves as the community as intersex. Mm. Um, but she uses a medical term. So yeah. next week, Mark, you're going to be introducing Chris Mulheron. Yes, I am. Chris Mulheron is a, uh, well, I should say Dr. Reverend Chris Mulheron, is the director of a Christian science organisation, ICAST, and he is also a philosopher who teaches the philosophy of science at Melbourne University. And recently, not that recently, but still relatively recently, he wrote an article for the conversation about climate change and science and how we understand that. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Steve. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine. Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne. Manningham Gallery, Swan Hill Regional Art Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support.